This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Paul Newton from the Cambridge Assessment Network Division, and this is another seminar in our current issues and assessment series. Well, I'm very pleased to be able to welcome and to introduce to you Professor Martin Fortley. Um, Martin is a professor of education at Birmingham City University. Um, I used to be a secondary school teacher, and in fact is no stranger to the University of Cambridge since between the period when, in which he was a school teacher and a professor of education, um, he actually studied for a PhD at the Faculty of Education here. Um, Martin's interests are in music education, assessment and creativity, but also cross-curriculum issues as well. Uh, he's the author of many books and articles, um, the most recent of his books being Assessment in Music Education and with Jonathan Savage, uh, Cross-Curricular Teaching and Learning in the Secondary School. So Martin, very glad that you could join us today and look forward to hearing your thoughts on National Curriculum Assessment from a music education perspective. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello, good afternoon. Um, my job at Birmingham City University is divided more into a very unequal two Part of the week, or part of the time, I spend doing educational research. The other time, I spend working on the PGCE course for intending teachers. And I work not just with music teachers, though they do take up a lot of my time, but also with with the wider cohort. So I'm very aware that when I'm talking to people, there's a whole range of things that they bring with them when I start to get into the nitty-gritty of music education and music education assessment. Um, And so I'll try and bear that in mind as I go through. A lot of what I'm going to talk about relates to key stage three assessment, which is age 11 to 14, the first three years of the secondary school. But there are other bits that impinge on it as well. Um, This might seem a bit oblique, but there are three informants to this uh, first part of what I'm going to talk about. And these are Ludlow, Schrodinger and Persig, and I'll explain why in a moment. Professor Ludlow's famous challenge, if it exists, it can be measured. If it can't be measured, it doesn't exist, Um, which I think has some resonances in terms of what I'm going to talk about. I'm also going to talk about a number of other things as well, but let's just start with that. And in doing that, I'm very aware I've just read to you what's on the slide, which I know is going to irritate lots of you. And because of my work with the PGCE, I know that the students have gone through their bit about what's VAK learning, does it exist, is it real, and all those other things. One of the students told me last week, you know this VAK? Yes, it's short for vacuous, he told me. So, but if, if VAK learning is true, if I read things to you, you're irritated. If I don't read things to you and you're a visual learner, you're going to be irritated. And if you're a kinesthetic learner, you're just going to be irritated anyway. So if it is true, at any given moment, two-thirds of you are irritated. So I'll try and irritate everybody by the end of the session. Schrodinger's cat is this strange paradox to do... I don't want to go into the details of it, but it's to do with nuclear physics. And it is simultaneously dead and alive until you look at it. And the reason that I'm going to talk about that will become apparent later on. But the interesting thing, as we know from real cats, is they tend not to be alive and dead at the same time. So there are issues with that. Betraying my age, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, I've been told, cannot be a book on the PGCE reading list. It's too frivolous. But I think it's got some really useful things to say to us. If you haven't read it, um, because you're not as old as me, then I suggest you, it really, it's got very little to do with Zen and not much to do with motorcycle maintenance. But it's got a lot to do with a chap having a nervous breakdown because he can't decide <clears throat> what quality is. He ha- he's an American, I think it's a liberal arts type college professor, and he has to teach a course on quality. I'm now about to irritate lots of you. 
quality. You know what it is, yet you don't know what it is. But that's self-contradictory. But some things are better than others. That is, they have more quality. But when you try to say what the quality is, apart from the things that have it, it all goes poof. There's nothing to talk about. But if you can't say what quality is, how do you know what it is? Or how do you know that it even exists? If no one knows what it is, then for all practical purposes, it doesn't exist at all. But for all practical purposes, it really does exist. What else are the grades based on? Now, that is so true for music education. I think it's true for lots of other things in education as well. But for music education, that is really, really quite a telling comment. So, what is the role of assessment? In other words, you're thinking, why are we here? What's he talking about? The role of assessment, I think, should be to get at degrees of quality. That surely is something that assessment ought to do. In other words, we ought to be able to say, what makes a good, and you can fill in the rest of the sentence yourself, what makes a good composition, good performance, good essay, good whatever? Why do we want to know what makes a good one? And then a really telling question, I think, do we know what a good one is? If we do know what a good one is, do we share this with pupils so that they know what a good one is? Sometimes I see pupils appearing to be working in the dark. The teacher has an inner-built view of what a good one is, but the kids don't share it. They don't know what the good one is that's in the teacher's head. And that creates real issues for us if they haven't shared that. I was watching a lesson where a student teacher was teaching a composing class to a group of 12-year-olds. And the, the topic was spooky music. It was a very you know, normal sort of lesson for Key Stage 3. And she played them Sorgsky's Night on a Bear Mountain which, if you don't know it, is sort of big orchestral piece, lots of thumping, crashing, very scary, has a good story. So she played them this, and the kids all got into it. Yeah, they could see why it was spooky. And she said, now I want you to make up your own, and you've got two wood blocks and a triangle. Now, the teacher had an idea of what a good one sounds like with two wood blocks and a triangle, but let me assure you that Mussorgsky used an awful lot more than two wood blocks and a triangle in his version. So the kids were, what? So although this thing is there... It needs to be shared with the pupils. They need to know. And then we need to ask this question, which might seem obvious, but turns out not to be quite so obvious. And it goes back to wants and needs. Who wants and needs to know? And why do they want and need to know? Um, As uh, I've discovered since being in academia, if you can cite yourself as often as possible, that's a jolly good thing. So um, this is a picture of what I drew when I was thinking about assessment in music education Um, for the book I was writing. And this struck me from a lot of visits I'd done to schools as to what I saw. And I'll just explain it a little bit here. The question is, who is the assessment for? And basically, when I'm watching kids in schools, I see teachers doing assessments with pupils and they're designed to help the kids with their learning. This could be formative or summative. Supposing they're doing a lesson, a a unit on guitar playing, and the kids are learning to play the E chord. I don't know if you remember this. It's a straightforward chord like this. And there's your E. You should have bought a guitar, but that's the basic principle of it. So the formative assessment, have the kids got their fingers in the right place? If they're wearing school uniform, is the tie dangling over the strings? Are they holding the guitar the right way up? Is all this working? These are all things that they can be doing. And the idea is to help the kids play the E chord better. That's the purpose of that sort of formative assessment. They want to help the kids learning. That's a very simple and almost facetious example, but that's the idea. It it goes on like that. What I see happening a lot is this side here, where summative assessments are being undertaken, which are being used to audit learning and doing. 
And these appear to vanish into some system's labyrinth in schools. And music teachers tell me, and we'll talk a bit more about this later on, that they're undertaking these assessments and they have no idea what happens to the results of these assessments. They have to hand their marks in. They don't know what happens to it. It doesn't help the kids with their learning and doing. Some assessments are for the teacher. They want to see how well the classes are doing. If you're in a secondary school, you want to know if 9A and 9Z are working at more or less the same level, what you need to do. So there's, there's assessments that you undertake for yourself, as it were. But at the basic heart of what teachers, and here I'm talking about music teachers are doing, and many other teachers beside, is they want to use assessment to help learning and doing. But they end up with this quite complicated map of assessment that has to happen. So the question that I I wish to ask is, will one assessment do all this? If you teach music, if you're lucky, you get one lesson a week with the kids. And that one lesson varies in time depending on your school. The shortest one I know of is 35 minutes. The longest one I know of is three hours. You will get any number between 35 minutes and three hours once a week. In some schools, that's once a fortnight. In exciting schools, it's once a fortnight for a term and then you don't see them again for another term because they're off doing art or drama and then you see them again the following term but the next time you don't see them for anywhere near as long. So there's all sorts of complicating other systems. So if, if you teach, if you've got one lesson and there are, say, five weeks in a half term, ten weeks in a term, if you spend a lot of your time doing assessment, you can see you're cutting in to teaching time and learning time. So if doing assessment intrudes, there are problems. Bao talked about this. He talked about the double duty of assessment. He talked about that they have to encompass formative assessment for learning and summative for certification. They have to have a focus on the immediate task and on implications for equipping students of the future. And that's what I find for music teachers. They're finding that their assessments are having to do double duty. They're having to help the kids learn. They're having to help the kids improve. And at the same time, they're having to provide national curriculum levels, which are then used in order that they can then be built up on and some sort of data collection process can take place. This is what I see happening in schools. The assessment reform group... Um, back in 2009, wrote about this. They said the nature and impact of assessment depends on the uses to which the result of that assessment is put. are put. A system whose main priority is to generate information for internal use by teachers on the next steps in pupils' learning may have different characteristics and effects from one where the drive is to produce a qualification which will provide a grade. I'm going to keep talking about the differences between these because I think they have become more and more muddied over time. And it's the idea of the uses to which assessment is put which becomes problematic. Now, I don't wish to insult your intelligence, but I just want to do a little bit of revision because there's an interesting terminology which I see which I think in schools is under-recognised. So I'm sure that we're all entirely happy with the notion of summative assessment looking back and certifying uh, attainment and the idea of formative assessment being in the moment and looking forward to helping with future achievement. But what I see in music lessons is that one at the top. And I can only talk about music lessons. I've seen more of these than any other lesson. And that's the formative use of summative assessment. And that's where the kids are given a national curriculum level. As a result of this national curriculum level... They then know what level they are and are told what level they need to be next time. This is the formative use of summative assessment, 
But the reason I'm raising it as an issue is that for many schools, this is formative assessment. The teacher tells me I'm doing formative assessment next Thursday, and that's what they mean. They mean they're doing this, that the formative use of summative assessment will take place. I'm going to talk in a bit about why this isn't the fault of music teachers. It sounds like I'm having a knock at them, but it isn't. But I do want to be quite clear that that very specific sort of assessment is very common in music. Because um, I've been around the block a few times, I remember a time before the national curriculum. And I think that actually, historically, music teachers were actually quite good at formative assessment. Back in the dim and distant past. Then, along came school assessment managers. And I can safely say I don't know any school assessment managers who are ex-music teachers. And so these school assessment managers have then told the music teachers, who are actually doing quite good formative assessment, they've told them they're doing it all wrong. And they've then changed what they do. So I just want to take you back in the TARDIS to 2003 and a jolly little video called Training Materials for the Foundation Subjects, which some of you may or may not remember. Um, One of my colleagues at work, who hasn't changed office for many years, which is a novelty at the university I work at, um, has all of these white and yellow ring binders from the National Strategy Materials in his office, which means that he doesn't actually have room quite to get in. So why he's saving them, I have no idea. I don't think they're going to be worth a great deal in the future. But there are reams of these things. And one of them is called Assessment for Learning in Everyday Lessons. And I'm going to show you just a little tiny moment of that, if the technology is going to be on my side. Okay, this video of a music lesson was designed to be shown to all teachers of foundation subjects, in other words, the non-core subjects in 2003. And it's very unusual that a music lesson should be chosen for something pretty significant and national. And many of us have wondered if that's because, for the reasons I talked about, this is an entirely normal music lesson for 2003. In fact, it's pretty normal for now. The kids are doing work, the teacher talks with them, she talks with them about improvement. There's assessment for learning going on. So this was then shown to other teachers. As I say, it wasn't just meant for music teachers, for all teachers of foundation subjects. Why am I showing it to you? Because unlike if I go into a school today, the teacher doesn't say, the first thing she says when the kids put their beaters down, she doesn't say that was a level 4B. And the number of times I'm in schools now, and the first thing that happens is the kids put their beaters down, and the teacher goes, good, that was a level 4B. She doesn't ask the class what level they thought it was, which is the alternative version of that. So the kids finish, and instead of the teacher going, that was a 4B, she says, OK, everybody, what level do we think they've just achieved? And um, as a reminder to myself, I watched the entire video, and she never mentions levels once in 25 minutes, which is almost unheard of in a music room nowadays. So these national curriculum levels 
aren't mentioned in this. So the kids aren't given that. I have a PhD student working with me at the moment who's an ex-teacher, an ex-art teacher working on creativity, and she says in her school, if she asked a question in the art class and the kids answered, she'd have to tell them what level their answer was. So she'd ask them a question and they'd say, good, that was a level 4B answer. That was a level 5C answer before she did anything else. Dylan Williams said, if what you're doing under the heading of assessment for learning involves putting anything into a spreadsheet, then you are not doing the assessment for learning that makes the most difference to student learning. And I've shared this little gem with a number of music teachers who've then written it down and gone and slapped their assessment managers with it because this is, this is the bit that really worries them and this is the bit that takes a lot of their time. So what happened to formative assessment? As long ago as 1997, Wynne Harlan and Mary James pointed out because formative assessment has to be carried out by teachers, there's an assumption that all assessment by teachers is formative, adding to the blurring of the distinction between formative and summative purposes, and to teachers changing their own ongoing assessment into a series of mini-assessments, each of which is essentially summative in character. And that's what I see in music. I see lots and lots of mini-summative assessments and the way that they, uh, they come up, I'm sure they come up in other subjects, but this is called in music the assessment lesson. And this is when I go into a school, and I'm doing a PGCE visit, for example, and I say to the student, OK, let me know when I can come and see you. Oh, don't come on Thursday, I'm doing assessment. So why don't I come and see you? Because I'm not teaching, I'm doing assessment. And it's become the assessment lesson. The kids have played their pieces to the teacher and to each other, and the teacher gives it a grade. And that's the assessment lesson. So there is no teaching or learning going on, I'm told, so don't bother to come and watch it. And so, that's, so where did that happen? What happened there? So I interviewed a teacher who, who dropped this in quite an interesting school in the West Midlands, this teacher. He said it's actually a very difficult lesson. For a lot of kids, it's a waste of time because they'll play their piece, and that's two minutes. So they're going to spend another 48 minutes potentially sat around listening to other people's. And even if you give them a little form and say, OK, here's a theme, smiley face, sad face, ambivalent face, and I want a reason why for each performance, it's still an inherently quite a dull lesson. Even though you're listening to other people's performances and it's enjoyable and everything, I feel that for me and the way our students are here, it's not the best use of time. And believe me, the way his students were there, it wasn't the best use of time. It became a behaviour management issue rather than a music lesson wasn't to say that he didn't want his kids to perform to each other. Far from it, they did. What he didn't do was put it all into this very concentrated, very small period of time where that happens. One of the advantages of being a PGCE tutor is that often you're taken into the staff room and given a cup of tea. And it's, it's, like, you can, it's like being a fly on the wall. And we are doing assessment a fortnight on Wednesday, I heard in one school. In fact, I hear that sort of thing very often. We've done assessment already. I need to level the kids by next Friday, which has sort of connotations. <laughs> I like that one. The assessment manager wants my levels tomorrow. Believe me, these are all real statements. I've heard all of these. And there's all sorts of... It's the backstory to each one of those that's fascinating. What do they understand assessment to be? So, makes me wonder, where did quality go? Where did quality go in the arts? And where did it go in music? And let's remember Persig. When you try to say what quality is... It all goes poof, there's nothing to talk about. Is this true? Okay, I've been talking for a bit. Let's have a musical interlude.
So this is a question, which is better? I'm gonna, okay, so the piece you've just heard, or this? your music teacher that question and they're going to worry a lot I mean you may be worrying a lot so I'm, I'm not going to ask you the question but if just think so wh- which is better out of those two imagine you're the teacher and you've got both of those appear in your A-level group and you have to say which is better it's, it's a worry isn't it but Roger Scruton tells us it's not um, it's surely not difficult to establish the superiority of Cole Porter over R.E.M. One only has to look at the incompetent voice leading in Losing My Religion, the misunderstanding of chord relations and the inability to develop a melodic line in which the phrases lead into one another with genuine musical need. I must say, the first thing I heard when I listened to Losing My Religion is listen to that incompetent voice leading. That's, um... But once you um, look at modern popular music in this way, you will come to see how gross, tasteless and sentimental it mostly is and how far it is from our tradition of meditative polyphony. I don't want to be accused of um, the opposite of elitism or anything, but as a question, I'm not entirely sure that 14-year-old pupils would agree with that. I don't think they're going to fall over themselves with excitement for a non-stop diet of polyphony between 11 and 14. Um, And would they agree across a range of contexts, in the inner city, in the urban, in the rural? Birmingham City University is located in a very inner city area of Birmingham. We only have to cross the road and we're in amongst very interesting inner-city kids who have no conception, I can safely say, of polyphony. So what are they going to think? Is this what we should be educating pupils for? Because as music teachers, you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to deal with a whole range of things, and you're going to have to think of assessment criteria. And essentially, one of the things that music teachers will be doing is assessing composing separately from performing. So if we think of those pieces in composing terms, I suppose I should have ripped off the OCR assessment being here rather than AQA, but never mind. AQA was there. The composition will be assessed against a given criteria, blah, blah, blah. The imaginative use of sound. Well, bird, imaginative use of sound, forget it. There there just isn't much imaginative use. A sense of musical balance, form and structure, probably. And so on. If you go through these and use each one separately... Some of the most famous pieces of music in the world end up scoring quite lowly because they don't do any of these things. And this is GCSE. If we go back to Key Stage 3, somebody has calculated that Bach, the great German composer, is probably working towards about level (laughs) 3. So there's there's some issues with what we do. 
So what is, if we're going to ask this, what is quality in key stage three music? And the question that I, I'd like to ask music teachers is what can a pupil know, do or understand at the end of year nine that they don't or can't, you know, rephrase it, at the start of year seven? Do we know? And I, so I'm sharing this with the music teachers. And then for me, a key thing is what's improved in terms of the music the pupil produces over that time? Remember all these kids have to do composing and performing as well as listening. What's improved? If you listen to a piece of music that a kid has done first term in year seven, by the time they get to the last term in year nine, what's improved? What's gone on? Now, at some point, somebody often asks about what about aesthetics? And the issue of aesthetics has been... Um, has been entertaining our cousins across the pond for a while. So, Csikszentmihalyi, how do we measure the impact, the outcome, the effects of an aesthetic experience? What's the proper way to assess aesthetic learning, he asks. David Elliott's response, although he did this before the question, as it were, is in the aesthetic view, a truly musical experience serves no practical purpose. An aesthetic experience is and must be intrinsic, immediate, disinterested, self-sufficient and distant. Any meanings, functions or experiences not directly related to a work structural patterns are deemed incidental, irrelevant, referential or non-musical. So that's what you do with aesthetics. The implications for music education, Pam Bernard, who's um, here in Cambridge in the Faculty of Education, has said this practical view of general music education affirms the complexity of children as reflective music makers and validates listening, performing, improvising, composing, arranging and conducting as interdependent forms of creating doing. And kids have to do these in secondary schools. These are all activities that kids have to do in key stage three music. It's a complicated mix of things that they need to do. So if we, think the, if we think these things are important, shouldn't we be trying to assess them? Shouldn't these be the things that we want to do? And then why is this relevant? Well, the reason that it's relevant is for that nice little thing called the National Curriculum for Music, which some of my PGCE students made up a song about. So you can read that while you can listen to some of the students. And it continues in that ilk until we've had the entire National Curriculum for Music virtually. Um, which is interesting. So there's some things there. In what is this National Curriculum doing? And it's here that I, I wish to spend a bit of time thinking about the idea of assessment of tool and the National Curriculum for Music.
It's my contention that music teachers only have one tool for assessment, and that's national curriculum levels. And in terms of the subtlety of assessment, that's like trying to mend a valuable watch with a sledgehammer. I don't think it's the right tool for the job. And again, I'm not saying, and I'm definitely not saying, that this is music teacher's fault. I think this has come from elsewhere. Um, You probably can't read that, so that makes it a really useful slide. Um, But should you be fascinated to know what a national curriculum level looks like, and you've never seen one before, A, lucky you, and B, here is one. So this is level five for music. I'm not going to read it all out, because there's a lot of it. But these national curriculum levels are everywhere. They literally are everywhere in schools. And they are used in very, very different ways. If you can actually manage to disinterpret or read some of the text, you'll notice that the first sentence says, pupils identify and explore musical devices and how music reflects time, place and culture. And it goes on in a similar vein with all sorts of general terms. What it doesn't do is say what Ofsted noticed in 2009. In one lesson scene, for example, students were told level three, clap a three-beat ostinato, level four, maintain a four-beat ostinato, level five, compose an ostinato. This demonstrated a significant misunderstanding of the expectations inherent in the level descriptions, said Ofsted. In Ofsted speak, um, a significant misunderstanding, I think, is a euphemism for absolutely nothing blooming like it. And so um, that's what we're noticing. However, I do feel that Ofsted could take some of the blame because these are the people that went into schools and asked teachers to rewrite the levels into pupil speak. So is it any surprise if you ask teachers to rewrite them into pupil speak, you get something like this, and then you go back into schools and tell them they've done it wrong? So, um, you know, I think there are some issues. 2009, that was an Ofsted report. Recently, in fact, very recently, in fact, I think either last Friday or the Friday before, I'm losing the track of time, we've had the latest pronouncement by Ofsted, who are still worried about the same thing. Although it's got a bit more complicated this time. After a short listening activity, the students were told in detail how they could achieve the various levels available for their composing work. The level descriptors projected on the whiteboard were, there they are, level 3.6, level 4, level 4.2, level 4.4, level 5... And then another nice piece of Ofsted speak. Learning was hindered because of the over-complex way that these levels had been constructed by the school and explained by the teacher. Insufficient emphasis was on the musical depth of the students' responses. These sub-levels don't exist. These do not exist officially. The only ones that exist are the whole numbers. So these have been made up. And so the school has made them up like this. I don't know what they, if they go every two, in which case, where is 4.6 and 4.8? And where's 3.8? I have some worries about that. But these national curriculum sub-levels... Now, once again, I think, hold on, Ofsted, I think you should take some of the blame, because these are things that teachers have been exhorted to do. So, I've been doing a bit of research. And I've been surveying teachers about national curriculum sub-levels. Where did they come from? So, I asked... Uh, this is an online survey... Um, I asked the question, where did these sub-levels originate? Sorry, it's another slide you can't see, so that makes it, again, really useful. But then it says, so I gave the teachers some choices to select from. I wrote them myself. 35.3 teachers responded that they'd done that. The music department in my school wrote them collaboratively, 11.8. A local authority or other group of schools wrote them, 5.9. A very honest 5.9, again, I found them on the internet, 
Nobody nicked them from another school, which was interesting. Then we had a lot of other. And the other are all variations on the phrase, this is what I was told. The senior SLT, senior leadership, told me that A is secure, or other words like it, B is at that level, C is just about. To make it really interesting and complex, some schools do it the other way around. So that C is really good and A is just beginning to. So you can always be reasonably sure that B is in the middle. But as a visitor, it does make it a bit complicated when you know what's going on. Um, So I did some research with Jonathan Savage last year, and we published a paper about how much they're used. Level descriptions are not designed to be used to level individual pieces of work. It used to say on the website, it now doesn't say that anymore since um, we have a change of government. That website appears to have vanished. But the original purpose of the levels was to be used once at the end of the key stage, not every three minutes for every time a kid lifts a glockenspiel beater or blows down a recorder. 25% of teachers responded they use them to assess individual pieces of work. So in other words, they're not supposed to be used, so 25% of teachers do. Only about 9%, and I think that number would have gone down now because we published this last year, but obviously there's the the time lag between publishing. I don't think I know anybody now who only uses them at the end of Key Stage 3. We found about 50% of teachers giving them once a term, only about 16% using them on an annual basis. Some schools I go in now, they are levelling kids every half term. So they have to provide this data every half term. One school I visit has to provide it every four weeks, And my favourite recent discovery is a music teacher has to send his levels in every week. He teaches one lesson, because he only has one lesson a week, because he's a music teacher, and then has to send his level grades in. So I think that assessment should be precision engineering instead. So I'm rather pleased. I found this picture on the internet, and it's got ref down, which is, for academics, this is occupying our mind very much at the moment. So assessment as precision engineering, is it or not? Okay, time for another musical interlude while I have a moment. So imagine you've got a group of pupils doing a unit on rhythm, and one group of pupils produces this. I said I'd mostly talk about Key Stage 3, but this is Key Stage 2. These are Year 4 kids. So what are they, 8? Something like that? This is a school, you could, if you weren't me, walk to it from where I work. It's that close to the university. It's in Hansworth, very um, inner city area of Birmingham, very multicultural. These are a group of little Year 4 kids. And I was in the school at the head teacher's invitation. And she'd got music everywhere. And as we went from one classroom to another, there's all sorts of things going on. And this is a little group of lads doing some doll drumming. So these are year four kids. And it made me think about when I hear secondary school music teachers say to me, no, they haven't done anything in primary school, so I presume they haven't done anything and start again. And I think, how dispiriting for those kids to be told, you haven't done anything. So imagine you are assessing them. Is rhythm enough? Because I see teachers, yeah, I assess them on their rhythm. Hold on, these are eight. That's complicated. I can't do that. 
And bear in mind, they've learned it. And if I played it, it goes on for quite a long time. And they change rhythm and awful lot of things going on. Is rhythm enough? Can, is that by itself, is that going to give you a flavour of what these kids can do? Which then leads me to think, what is an assessment criterion? What should it do? What's the point of it? And the one that worries music teachers more than anything else is what about the unexpected? You set kids a task. They do sort of what you tell them to do but they do something so different that's really good that you worry about how you're going to assess it. And that can be a real problem for them. Keith Swanick, back in 1997, in the hurly-burly of contemporary teaching, we need clear criteria that help us say, yes, this is effective music-making, or this is astute appraisal. And I can safely say we still haven't got these for music. We do not have these, certainly for Key Stage 3 music. Gordon Stobart... Talking about assessment for learning again, one of the key elements of assessment for learning is the emphasis on making explicit both what is being learned and what successful learning would look like. Achieving clarity in this process is like walking a tightrope. If it's not clear what is being learned and why and what success would look like, then learners will remain bemused. If it becomes too tightly specified, then it becomes an exercise in compliance. And in music, I see that. Sometimes... A very common project for kids to do at Key Stage 3 is to do a, a project on the blues. And the blues, if you don't know, is a, basically a 12-bar sequence of chords that uses three chords in a preset order. And the task for the kids is to reproduce the preset order of the chords. And basically, a music teacher I know says that he, use, he does this using Lego bricks. And he's got a different colour brick for each chord. And so long as the kids get the bricks in the right order, they've done the blues. So he says, so what's the point of that? It's an exercise in compliance. As long as you get the chords in the right order, you've got it right. If you haven't got the chords in the right order, you've got it wrong. Whether or not they do anything effective with it otherwise is an entirely different matter. What is good about the blues can be lost in the case of that, yes, you've got the chords in the right order. So one of the things that I think we need to think very carefully about is the need to separate assessment from grading. And giving a grade alone is not formative assessment. The number of schools I go in where the kids have some variation on a sticker on the cover of their books with their level written on and their target level underneath it, which will be something like, I am a 4C, I need to be a 4B. Um, And this is okay, but how do you get to be a 4B? That little sticker won't tell you. And so it's reasonably logical to assume that we want the kids to go from 4C to 4B, whatever that is, but the kids don't know what that means. It's that hammer. Because teachers have been given only one tool, that hammer, they use them all the time. When my kids were very young, they had a sort of rubber hammer toy and everything got hammered with this hammer, including the things you were supposed to hammer. But everything in the sitting room, bedroom and anywhere got hammered, including dad, I can uh, safely confess. But you name it, it got hit with a hammer. And it's a bit like that with the music team. Oh, yeah, that's national curriculum level time. Go around the room. This is either because other tools are not available, they just don't exist... They're not credible. There's one or two tools that we had in the 1950s and 60s that really are no longer with us. Our teachers don't know about them. A lot of teachers tell me, here's that phrase, I have to level kids again with the sub-levels. And there has to be clear progress, i.e. higher levels each time. The kids can only get better. They can only improve. It's a fairly soul-destroying process. Now, we know, 
at least I think we know, that progression isn't really linear. This was some research way back. But however it looks, I I think we know that progression isn't really linear, that kids don't necessarily make that sort of progress. That's not how it looks. They don't work like that. Gary Spruce has said that the linear model presumes predictable and common stages of development and ignores children's social and cultural backgrounds, which so affect their perception of what music is and means to them. An example is, I've talked about Key Stage 3, and I've talked about a couple of projects. I talked about the spooky music, the blues. That's how a lot of Key Stage 3 music looks. There's project after project, basically. A common project at Key Stage 3 is songwriting. And many kids really get into this. They like writing their own songs. They do some good... They're really engaged with the songwriting. They really get into it. And they can usually manage on the assessment criterion to do quite well. A project that comes after it might not engage them anywhere near as much. And a number of schools have have used projects from later on, from GCSE and A-level at Key Stage 3. So in one school in particular, they got their songwriting project, then they did a project on the Viennese waltz. Okay, So you can imagine that all sorts of disaffected kids are really turned on by songwriting, because they can really do this, and they score really quite well. But then when it comes to the Viennese waltz, they really, really couldn't give a, you know, creme cappuccino about this. So they, they, so they don't score anywhere near as, as well on it. So the music teacher in that school told me he's had to swap the units around because he can only show progression. So you've got to move the Viennese waltz unit that way in order for progression to be shown this way. It's just... I've, I've talked about this a number of times in a number of forums, and after one of them I had a wonderful email from a parent It intrigues me that my son, now starting year nine, has, according to his termly assessment reports in year seven and eight, made slow incremental progress through the sub-levels one by one and is right on target to make two levels progress in every subject, no more, no less. Fancy that. So why why are we tearing ourselves apart to do this? Why are we doing it to ourselves? We also, we've known for donkey's years how you measure matters. This is the same thing on two different scales. This is showing improvement, but that's a very small scale and that's a very big scale. And if this is what national curriculum music looks like, over time, they're getting better. It isn't national curriculum music as it happens, but the same principle holds. But you can't go from your, here's the songwriting unit, here's the Viennese waltz, you can't do that now. That's just not, that is verboten. You cannot do it. So it has to be linear progress. So that's why that unit's now got to be shunted back over here in order to show that. Whereas in reality, over time, they are going to make progress. And so it really matters. I've talked about sublevels, um, so a little bit of returning to it. I'm, I'm researching them at the moment. All of them that I've looked at use three parts in this particular piece of research, all of them. Although interestingly, in one school, and maybe that Ofsted one is another example of it, they, they'd got more than three. They'd broken them down into ten, which I found a bit worrying, that they'd got ten sub-statements for music. But they then reduced them to three for normal reporting purposes. Um, and the head of music said the music department uses modified versions of the national curriculum level to break down each level into ten subcategories. We then use a line of best fit to decide if the student is A, B or C within the level. We wrote the ten subcategories ourselves. Good for them. But I worry about how much effort they've put into this. 
in order to make this work for them, rather than be actually helping the kids write their songs. So what can you do? I'll read it to you. Are you required, teachers, to show that your pupils have made at least a specified amount of progress using the NC levels and subdivisions if appropriate? Or are you free to use your professional discretion as to how much progress has been made by individual pupils? Interestingly, 50, just under 58% of teachers who responded to this said, I'm free, I can do what I like. But sadly, 35%, I have to show, have to show that my pupils have made at least the required progress. And then there's variations, there's some other things. And one teacher said, I thought I was free to use my professional discretion. Turns out I wasn't. At the end of the key stage, I was told to change the levels to meet the percentage target. So the teacher had undertaken the assessment, but that wasn't good enough, so they had to change the levels. So, in which case, why? Because if you're just meeting a spurious target, is that the word? A target that's been imposed, and you change your results to fit the target... How does that help? How much progress is required? I won't go through this in detail, but these are are the common answers from a number of schools. There's all sorts of different amounts of progress required, ranging from one level per year through six sub-levels over Key Stage 3, the sub-levels that don't exist, remember, Um, so we've no idea about how many they're doing, to a term, four... So progress itself in different schools means different things. There isn't a commonality. What does this mean for teachers? Supposing you're the music teacher and your kids haven't made two sub-levels progress per term. What happens to you? I get carpeted by the line manager, a teacher says. Figures are flagged in red on the data sheet. There's an inquisition into teaching and learning in the department by the senior leadership team, if there's a significant amount of red. The insinuation that schemes of work are not engaging or enjoyable enough. So then there's a pupil voice questionnaire activated to investigate why. Professional judgment of teacher largely ignored. That's what happens if you don't meet the required statement. And here's another teacher. We get told to increase them. This is directed from the head teacher, but nothing is ever in writing. Mm. This being the case, as long as we show every child is improving by the levels, then it's sufficient whether they have or not. That's even more scary, isn't it? So as long as we do what we're told, it doesn't matter. They leave us alone. Senior leadership team don't know what a level five or six in music looks or sounds like. As long as you give them the levels they require, they're happy. So, so why bother? One school I went in, um, the maths department had written a very cunning Excel spreadsheet which semi-randomised all the levels for everybody. And so for small amounts of beer bribery, they would provide you with this spreadsheet which then teachers could use to show semi-randomised improvement across the... Uh, Classes and it took a good few terms before the senior leadership team cottoned on that this was going on. So that just shows how useful they are. This, this, is, this, this is a teacher who's obviously really wound up by this. You can imagine writing this on a survey response. <laughs> Each half term, data is analysed in a progress tra- tracker by data managers. There's more acronyms here than you can throw a stick at. The data is analysed by cohort boys, girls, GNT, SEN, LAC, FSM, NFFS, that's looked after children, free school meals and not free school meals. 
Following production of the progress tracker, I have to meet with each member of my team to discuss the progress of each cohort in each of their classes, and they have to explain any underachievement or leaps in progress. Each member of staff has an action plan for each group which tracks the intervention they've put in place with their classes, e.g. letters home, detention, homeworks issued. Following meetings with each member of my team, I then meet with the SLT link for CPA, I have no idea what CPA is, who asks for feedback from my learning conversations with staff and looks for areas of good practice. At this meeting, a focus of the half-termly work and scrutiny is agreed, and I then have to carry out a work scrutiny and feed results of this back to the SLT. Somewhere in between this, I think I managed to teach a bit of music. One lesson a week, remember? One lesson a week. And my favourite, which I won't read out... That's what happened. So, Warwick Mansell said, Why? League tables and target setting produce incentives for schools to do everything they can to improve the numbers. This is what's going on. So, I asked teachers, I said, Does key stage three assessment get in the way of music making? Add strongly agree and agree together, and look what you get. Isn't that sad? These people are there to make music with the kids. And yet that number of people are telling us that Key Stage 3 assessment is getting in the way of the thing that they thought they were doing. The Ofsted report that came out very recently, even they have noticed, assessment in secondary schools was frequently overcomplicated. Wow. And did not focus enough on the musical quality of students' work. What do they say needs to be done about it? Increasing head teachers and senior leaders' knowledge and understanding about the key characteristics of effective music provision, including the appropriate use of musical assessment. I wish Ofsted would write that on a brick and then throw it through every head teacher's window, because that's the real thing that's making a difference. Head teachers and senior leaderships need to understand about the appropriate use. If you're teaching music and you have to give them a a level every half term, in other words, every five lessons. The question I ask when I'm in schools is, do you ask your maths teachers to do that every five lessons, which is about once a week? Do you expect them to improve every fortnight by a sub-level, like you're asking the music teachers? Because it's about the same numbers. If you have about five maths lessons a week, and you have about five music lessons a half term, why are you treating them the same? Shouldn't they be different? What's the effect? The summative hammer is everywhere. And I think formative assessment is undervalued by teachers and senior leadership teams. John Painter, the late great, said, we may all too easily allow ourselves to be trapped by compromise, making important what can most easily be evaluated rather than valuing what's important. In which case, why do we bother with anything that relies upon the exercise of imagination, creative response and the expression of independent views? And you can see why, if you're a busy music teacher and the assessment manager says, I need your levels by Friday, and you've been too worried about the school concert or the carol service or the show you're doing down the old people's home, that all of a sudden you decide that you're going to have to do something like this just to feed that slide I showed you way back at the beginning, the system. It's all to do with the system. So, on the home straight now, you'll be pleased to hear. So what's the point of all this? The point is that quality, it is there. And we can tell what it is. Those boys playing those doldrums in that school in Birmingham were good. No dispute about that. And I don't think people would argue with that. That was a quality piece of music. But we have trouble saying saying what it is. So in many ways, we find it hard to write assessment criteria for it. So in many cases, we assess other things instead, some of which may be pointless. I watched um, some kids playing keyboards in a 
school, they learnt to play uh, a tune. And one of the assessment criteria was, has their tie done up? And this was worth as much as all the other criteria. You know, there were five things, and each one was worth 20%. So I said to the teacher, you know, why have you put the words of school rule? But your having the tie done up criteria is now worth as much as the way that they play the piece of music. Yeah, but it's a school rule. Well, can't you just tell them to do their ties up and then assess the musical things? Hmm, I suppose so. And so you just think, well, hold on, you could be a really nice, immaculate child... And therefore, you get 20% more than somebody who's a scruff but plays it really well. <laughs> so some things may be pointless. It's shredding as cat. It's alive. We know what quality is. We can recognise it, appreciate it in an odd way. We also know when it's there. And it's dead. We can't seem to be able to write assessment descriptors for quality, so we produce them for other things instead, some of which have nothing to do with quality. Therefore, a piece of music or anything can be low on quality but get a good grade. And I've seen examples where the, the grades are things that are easy to assess. Are they holding the instrument the right way up? Well, suppose they're doing a piece of experimental music, and that's not the point. There's all sorts of things that they can do. So Schrodinger's cat in music education is alive and dead simultaneously. So, going back to the beginning, Ludlow, does quality exist if it can't be measured? I'm not sure I've addressed that terribly well. LO's being learning outcomes here, like all the student teachers have to at the moment. They're on teaching practice. Tell the class what they're going to learn and then make sure they learn it. And then at the end of it, tell them what they've just learned. So I'm more or less doing the same thing. From Persig, do we know what quality is? And we already know that Schrodinger's cat is alive and dead. But I think one of the problem is when we try and measure how dead the cat is using national curriculum levels. How dead is that cat? Is it level 3 dead or is it level 3A dead? And finally, my four final, final thoughts. If we can't define what quality is, how can we assess it? It's formative assessment that makes a difference to pupil learning. There's no country saying you can weigh the pig every day, you do have to feed it occasionally. And I see a lot of pig weighing going on. And what I'd quite like to be doing is seeing pig feeding rather than pig weighing. Um, just because something can be assessed doesn't mean it has to be. Now, it's dead easy to tell if somebody's got their tie done up or not. It doesn't mean you have to do it. And I see assessment being used for purposes other than to help pupil learning. So those are my final thoughts. And for anybody that really wants to study through, those are the references I've used. Thank you. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.